welcome back to this week's episode of the Perfect Perception Podcast. This week, we are going to dive into creativity and human potential. With technology and information increasingly on the rise, let's discuss how we are preparing future generations to be able to interact and engage with the increased pace of information that is available with the click of a button. The educational paradigm is shifting, and hopefully it is prepared to keep up with the schools in the United States still governed by standardized test scores and one-tracked thinking towards definitive outcomes, hopefully we are prepared to take that leap of faith towards how students engage with information in the classroom. Can we ride the paradigm shift to support the brain development of our students so that they have the capacity to infer ripple effects on human behavior and to experience foresight in how current societal decisions will play out into the future. In 2018, NASA did a study trying to uncover truths about human creativity and its prevalence in students and adults in today's world. Out of their almost 2,000 participants, they found that about 98% of kids aged 4 to 5 scored at the creative genius level. That number dropped to only about 30% after five years. So what is causing this dramatic shift in creative thinking? A large proponent is thought to lie in the ongoing systematic approach of education. I wanted to dig a little deeper and see what current neuroscience research had to say on this topic. For decades, neuroscientists and psychologists have tried to understand what exactly goes on in our brain when we turn our imagination loose. Five-year-olds invent imaginary friends or play out imaginary scenarios. Teenagers daydream about singing on stage or what playing professional sports might be like. And adults experience times when they envision large job achievements or about that shiny new sports car. But if we try to span that imagination out too far from our current reality in this time and space, for example, like a thousand years from now, it becomes increasingly difficult to imagine what our world may become or visualize certain scenarios in the distant future. By using the dorsomedial part of what scientists refer to as the brain's default network, creative people can stretch their imagination to more distant futures, places, perspectives, and hypothetical realities. The default network consists of a group of interconnected brain regions, including the medial prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulate cortex, the angular gyrus, and the hippocampus. These brain areas talk to each other when we daydream, recall memories, or think about the intentions of others. Previous literature suggests that they may also play a role in envisioning the future. The traditional education system, with its emphasis on structured learning, standardized testing, and predetermined curricula, often is not placing the focus on the default mode network, rather placing a heavy burden on the task positive network, or TPN. The TPN is responsible for focused attention and goal-directed activities, making it essential for absorbing and reproducing information. However, this focus on directed tasks can inadvertently suppress the DMN, the default mode network, and stifle creative thinking. 
traditional education often prioritizes rote memorization over critical thinking and problem solving. Students are frequently encouraged to memorize facts and regurgitate information rather than explore the deeper implications of the knowledge that they acquire. This approach limits opportunities for the DMN to engage in creative processes, hindering the development of innovative thinking skills. Rigidity in curricula and standardized testing can confine students to a predetermined path, leaving little room for exploration and self-discovery. The DMN thrives on the freedom to explore and make unexpected connections, and a more flexible educational approach is essential for unlocking this creative potential. Furthermore, those previously mentioned ways of thinking foster a fear of failure, as students are conditioned to prioritize getting the quote-unquote right answers. This fear can stifle creativity as the DMN requires an environment that embraces experimentation, risk-taking, and the acceptance of failure as a natural part of the learning process. After spending nine years in the educational domain myself, it became increasingly apparent at how difficult riding the shift of this paradigm has been. One step forward, two steps back. Or rather, it's probably more similar to two steps forward, one step back, or at least I'd like to think so. The waves would rise and fall from the start of the school year into the months following the holidays as teachers and students begin to count down to spring break and furthermore to the end of the year. The success of any initiative was better measured by its performance end of year than at its germination. But why is that so? I would like to reference some work that almost just fell into my lap recently at a coffee shop. After attending a local entrepreneurial event, I got connected with someone named Chuck Peters, who I went on to discover had a large role to play in one of the educational programs that I was involved with during my time teaching. When you have a synchronized moment in life, it feels pretty wild, and this was definitely one of them. Chuck was involved in the development of a program called Iowa Big, which inspired programs that I facilitated within my small town district that was kind of like a suburb to the larger city where Iowa Big was taking place until finally in my last year of teaching, we partnered up with them. Chuck was involved in some of the groundwork conversations to get the Iowa Big program um, on its feet. But the work that I'm referencing, um, Chuck and a team of people, they were working on generativity, research around generativity, which if I pull up a quick definition, generativity is defined as the propensity and willingness to engage in acts that promote the well-being of younger generations as a way of ensuring the long-term survival of the species. His team published the book, The Way to Generativity, From Dissonance to Resonance. I will leave a link for that in the show notes, but I would like to share a small snippet that brings light to the uphill climb of the educational paradigm shift that I had witnessed firsthand. As the structures and dynamics of the communities forged in the 20th century begin to cause more struggle, the seeds of a new era are germinating, sprouting, and even flourishing in the small beds around the globe. From a spiritual center in Iowa to a state ministry in Austria, from an elementary school in London to a city in Ontario, we have witnessed new ways of being in the community and have a great deal to teach us all. We call this the way of generativity. 
generative individuals in generative communities embody a way of being that nurtures individuals, groups, and their environments to grow into deep resonance with one another. Because individuals, groups, and their environments are in deep connection with one another, they develop true care. Because they care, they support each other in the development of their highest potential. Because they support their mutual development, they flourish. Like starting a new garden, preparing the soil takes time and effort. Tending new plants requires attention and patience. The true beauty and resilience of a garden takes years to develop. So too with generativity. Generativity takes time, effort, attention, and patience. Our anxieties are much quicker to rouse than our creativity. We cannot provide overnight cures to the ailments of the 20th century communities. While reading that was a hard truth, uh, almost a hair-pulling truth, um, it was a truth that ultimately resulted in me stepping away from the teaching field personally. It still feels like a truth nonetheless. Through connecting the research on creativity and the hard truth of generativity, I feel like I'm finally gaining some clarity over my own turmoil at this transitory stage of life. I spent nine years in the education system and no two years were the same. It felt like a spiritual initiation in itself. I wanted to change the system so badly and just as badly as I wanted it, opportunities were almost handed to me. While the pace of change in the system was slow, my experience within it was chaotic. I started to lose my connection with value. When you try something new every year, it can be hard to observe its effect. When you are whirling around in a ball of chaos, it's hard to determine if any of it matters. I started to realize that more important than being a part of change was connection to value, to feel like it's making a difference, to be able to slow down enough and observe the difference it's making. The inherent nature of my roles was also fairly isolating. I was often in a part of the school separate from others or off campus, but because my role was unlike that of anyone else in the building, it was hard to find connection and the opportunity to bounce my ideas with others on a regular basis. I wanted to share that part of my story because I know my experience isn't isolated. More people are beginning to question what their role is here, and that stems from experiencing environments where the scales of life are off balance. When things go well, people aren't questioning the nature of our reality. It's because there are several things that aren't working in our favor that more people are beginning to wake up and speak out about their truth. With the rise of social media, People are finding others to connect with that share their same sentiments and are realizing that they are not alone in the way that they feel. The percentage of mental health diagnoses in the United States is also on the rise. The percentage of people that are slowing down and taking the time to analyze their life circumstances is growing in numbers. The great resignation is growing. More people are discovering and sharing ways to slow down and be more mindful. People are taking the time to care about the ingredients that are in the mass production of our foods and fast food. And people are realizing that fast food only thrives because we are in a culture that is too fast paced for us to manage everything on our own. The only way out is through and to complain and be heard can be cathartic. The way to freedom isn't by avoidance of truth, but by bringing awareness to it. This makes me think of Gene Key 55. If you aren't familiar, Gene Keys is a 
synthesization of several spiritual growth tools to help you contemplate your life experience, and it's curated by Richard Rudd. Gene Key 55 is that of the shadow of victimization to the sage of freedom or to the city of freedom. Many speak on it as the marker of the great change. Because we live in a perception-based reality, it's an internal shift in the viewpoint of our world and how you bring peace and empowerment to the self to live to your highest potential. I think the work of Shirzad Shamin is of great support to this as well as we shift the negative thought loops in our brain to empowering ones from the saboteur to the sage. But there are collective elements to this as well. Carl Jung referred to this as the collective consciousness. As science expands its exploration into what they refer to as dark matter, perhaps we will experience a larger scale of understanding to the knowledge that ancient yogis of the East have understood for centuries. We are on the precipice of the bridging of the gap of the East and the West, of the science in the Western world as it has evolved as an external exploration and extension of our human form and human vessel, vessel through tools such as the telescope and the truth of the yogis through the inner science of yoga. The quote of the hermetic philosophy, as within, so without, as above, so below, as the universe, so the soul. I mentioned earlier that the only way out is through, but just like the very nature of our brains and the synaptic connections, the paths in life are equally as proliferant. The time that is spent in the victimhood mentality will be dependent upon each individual's perception of reality and the willingness to find a way out of it or the timing and the ways that come naturally them to them like when the lessons come to find the way out of it the way through this is where i think the muscle building of the default mode network will be an advantage the ability to see varying solutions and the willingness to close the gap of doubt in order to bring the vision into reality and the archetype of this person in the workplace, I see as like they have the ability to do the work of many people in one day. They have honed their confidence to a level that even if they don't know the answer, they know they will be able to find and acquire the answer. As they develop this multi-potential problem solver skill set, they aren't always getting the recognition or pay for doing so. The value to quote unquote work hard isn't as strong in society today. The mantra has been more closely aligned with work smarter, not harder. There's also an intricate tie to value and income. If these people are taking on jobs of many people, but see other people in the workplace doing less work and getting the same pay, that will inherently result in them feeling less valued. Workplace turnover is increasing and as we fail to meet the needs of these unique skill sets and archetypes. And sometimes it's hard to come up with solutions when it feels like we're playing with limited pieces of the puzzle. We are playing the game without all of the rules and without knowing all the player traits of our character. In terms of evolution and human brain development and perception, why are there some people that thrive on a one-task mind and why are some people so energetically open to simply throw paint at a canvas? What roles do each of these archetypes play? 
What systems do we need to put into place to guide and advise both types of people as they navigate their early years in education? Instead of standardized tests that analyze an individual's ability to guess the right answer on a multiple choice exam, how can we use assessments to better refine how a person thinks, behaves, interacts, and functions within a group? Instead of top-down comparing them to each other and the whole of that school to another school, how do we go from the bottom up and nourish each individual to thrive outside of comparison? How you perceive yourself matters. If early on in your educational experience, you begin to label yourself as less than in relation to classroom test scores or standardized tests, which in all honesty aren't measuring a lot, (laughs) you may begin to perceive yourself in a negative light instead of spending all the time identifying unique strengths and nourishing those. For example, let's say Billy is obsessed with tornadoes. Well, really all things weather, but specifically tornadoes, that he could tell you all of the detailed classifications of tornadoes by first grade. That is not a piece of content that you learn in first grade. And that displays a willingness to seek out information that interests him. And it's done in his free time. In a time where there is a plethora of people that want to just be told what to do and how to do it, Billy truly has a unique gift. However, because Billy didn't score so well on the reading assessment, he is now put into remedial reading programs or support for a large part of his day. He spends more of his day focusing on the deficits than his strengths. Imagine what that ingrains into his self-confidence and what the adults in the room are telling him are important to focus on. Billy has an ability to accumulate and learn information, obviously, because he can tell you everything you need to know about an F4 tornado. When we advise people what to do after their time in the U.S. education system, it's to do something you are passionate about, but the opposite is ingrained. Billy was passionate about tornadoes, but what was taught organically through the system of education was that focusing on your passion is not something we do here. It's a strong case of do what I say, not what I do. By the time Billy graduates, he might have such low self-esteem that he loses his passion he once had or that spark to seek out the answers to the questions that inspire him. This is more than just teaching and inspiring growth mindset in schools. It's about shifting so that we are walking the walk, not just talking the talk. I wanted to change this so badly that I had my very own metaphorical treadmill set up and as I tried to run faster and faster, the things around me didn't seem to change. This experience was a spiritual initiation for me because I began to really grapple with the example I was setting within the system. Did the kids know that I don't support the way things are? Am I standing strong and not falling back into the trap myself? How do I keep that vitality moving at times where I am personally experiencing sickness after sickness and burnout is creeping in and my nervous system is screaming at me? To to sustain my health, I would almost have to soften in, give in to the way of some of the things that are happening. But everything in my core was saying, that is not what I stand for. It was a crossroads moment in my life. Can I soften? Can I give in? Can that feel fulfilling for me? It, it seems to work just fine for others, but are they thinking the same things in the way that I am? Are they considering how this impacts the generations of our future and their entrance into the workplace during this age of information or technology? 
Do they see that this isn't supporting a majority of them to thrive? And if I soften, will I constantly have this voice in the back of my head judging me for giving in? Can I give myself grace because the thought of leaving this safe career that I had created for myself is is something maybe I deserve to keep. I grew up in the same system and I didn't know any better either. I didn't know what I didn't know going into it at 18 years old. But I have a foresight to see that there are other ways, but I just don't know how to get there. What do I do? It was the triggering moment that delineated safety and comfort from value and purpose. Which one do I choose if it's If it's feeling impossible to have both, I guess this relates to the expression of the darkness is where the light enters you. I know by experience how this system can fail people. I know that there are people out there with more unique skill sets than the one track mind system supports. Ignorance may be bliss, but I lost it and I can't pretend to have it or something inside of me will feel off balance. So what do I do now? I'm, I'm not sure. The best thing I know to do is to put myself out there, create scenarios of luck for myself, to meet new people, and to set the intention that the gap of the four degrees of separation will close in and that maybe I will find the unique role in life that feels fulfilling, where I truly feel that I can use my gifts to their fullest potential without holding back. This is the path of the unknown. And if you are here too, I just want to say that you're not alone. Have a great week, everyone.